0: Okay, good evening, everybody. I'm going to do this week with a voice. So it's a little advantage over last week. And tonight is our uh, Christology study. We did theology uh, last week, the the doctrine of God. Tonight we'll do the doctrine of Christ and pray that it honors him and uh, that it's understandable. So um, let's go ahead and pray. And get into this amazing uh, doctrine. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, and uh, we thank you for the day uh, that we've had behind us. We thank you for the night in front of us, Lord, and we pray that, Lord, you found us faithful um, throughout the day. I thank you for the people, Lord, that are tuning in and showing up uh, to hear about you on a Wednesday night. Lord, we recognize the fatigue that comes with the day behind us, and I just want to uh, praise you, Lord, for being a God who they so desire to hear about even after a hard day's work. So, Lord, have your way with us. Lord, let your spirit run free in here, we pray. May we be sensitive to your leading. And we, may we be obedient to your commands. So we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's very angelic. Good. Okay. All right. So I wanna start with kind of the seriousness and the importance of a study on the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being pretty much a wandering itinerant, small town, homeless for the most part, preacher, and now the whole world has a doctrine of your life that they study? How do you pull that off? How do you pull off that every event in human history is dated? by how many years before your birth or how many years after your birth that event happened? How do you get to be that guy? So who is this person that has been sung about more than any person's ever been sung about? He's been written about more than any person has been written about. He's been discussed more than any person's ever been discussed. He's been taught more than anybody's been taught. More buildings, churches, orphanages, hospitals, that originate from motivation from him have occurred than any other person that's ever lived. So how do you get to be that guy? Well, we're going to look at this doctrine of Christ, Christology. And as we set the boundaries for this last week, we said we study doctrine because there are boundaries to which we really dare not exceed. Um, that's where heresies come in. And when we study the doctrine of Christ, the main reason we have the cults of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and folks like that is because they violate this doctrine. This is a doctrine that gets violated that creates the cults. So we need to know what the scriptures have said about Jesus Christ and form our thoughts and ideas about Jesus Christ strictly from these scriptures. So, According to a 2019 study, roughly 97% of evangelical Christians affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. 97% affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one true God and three persons, the three persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know why it's not 100% if you're an evangelical Christian, but 97% is probably as good as it gets, right? As good as you can expect. Yet, that same survey found that nearly 80% of those surveyed believed Jesus Christ to be a created being, that he's not eternal in the past. So how could you believe that he's God, as part of the Trinity, and yet there was a time when he didn't exist? So you could see the contradiction in the many, many people who were surveyed that they don't realize they're holding a contradictory view of Jesus. He can't both be God and be a created being. Yet many of them said both of Jesus. So it's important, it's important that we see both the full humanity of Jesus Christ and the full deity of Jesus Christ. So we're going to basically look a little bit at church history and a whole lot of scripture. I don't know if you counted last week. I think I had 35 scriptures for you. And I think. We have more this week, but I don't know that we're going to be able to cover all of them. So we'll see how it goes. So I'm going to start with this idea. I'm going to give you four ideas, four concepts that scripture show us that show that Jesus Christ is God. Because the greatest, the definition of God is that he is the greatest conceivable being. You cannot conceive of a being greater than God. And so the greatest thing you could ever say of yourself, the greatest claim you could ever make is that you are that greatest conceivable being. And that's the very claim that Jesus Christ made. So that would take some convincing for most people. So the New Testament teaches the heavenly pre-existence of Christ before he took on flesh the heavenly pre-existence of Christ before taking on flesh. So in Colossians 1.17, Paul said, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist. Okay, He's not an effect of anything. He's not a result of anything. He's before all things. And in him all things consist. Ephesians 4.9 and 10, Paul says, Now, He's talking about the ascension and descension of Jesus. He says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So he's from the heavens. He has preexistence. Now what I want to show you, Is that the Old Testament signaled to us? The Old Testament signaled to us this pre-existence of Christ in Numbers chapter twenty, verses eight through eleven. These are fascinating texts, and you might read these in the Old Testament and go, "Wow, that was pretty fascinating." But do you catch in the New Testament what the New Testament author is saying about that Old Testament text? So in Numbers chapter twenty, verses eight through eleven, and we get this story. God says to Moses, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water from them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, we must bring water for you out of this rock. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Okay, Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says this, And all of those Israelites drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so you get the story of this incredible rock producing water for a million or two million Israelites. And then Paul just says this, hey, that rock was Christ, and it followed them. If you get followed by a rock, you know there's something to that rock. Right? Okay? <clears throat> and that rock was Christ. So <clears throat> the preexistence, before he's born in the flesh, we get the existence of Christ in the form of that rock. Numbers chapter 21, verses five and six says this. Then the Israelites journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a certain had, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, it's an incredible story, but listen to these two New Testament passages now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. Paul says, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted him, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Okay? So, it says... Don't tempt Christ because when they tempted Christ, they were destroyed by serpents. The pre-existence of Christ. And much more fascinating to me is John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus. And right before he gives the verse that we all know, that God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, right before that he said, he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that all who believe on him will not die, but have everlasting life. So Jesus is comparing himself to that bronze serpent that Moses put up on the pole. And that's really a fascinating thought, that Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, will compare himself to the animal that represents Satan, that represents Satan himself. Now, that shows you, (coughs) that shows you, what Jesus is actually doing on that cross. The Bible says he became sin, he became a curse, he became the serpent that had to be lifted up. And it's our fault, we did that to him. So now think about what God had in mind when he said Moses make a serpent and lift it up on a pole, he's thinking of the cross of Christ one day, that Jesus will become that serpent figure for us. One of the most horrifying verses in all of scripture is when Paul tells us Jesus became sin. The very stench in his father's nostrils, Jesus had to become that for us. He didn't become a sinner, but he became sin on our behalf. And so that serpent of numbers has a lot of significance uh, for us in fulfillment in Jesus. Then in the, Paul expresses Jesus' unique sonship to his father. It's not an ordinary sonship, it's a very unique sonship that he has with his father. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I think these are two very important verses for Christology. Paul says, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he says, now consider Jesus Christ our Lord. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus Christ is human. It's very human terminology to use. Then there's a comma. And then it says this, and he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he says, listen, he's born of the flesh, of the seed of David. And he's also declared to be the son of God through the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's a perfect description of Jesus as man and Jesus as God. And we're going to unpack that much, much more in just a a moment. (coughs) The New Testament also applies passages from the Old Testament that are talking about Yahweh himself, God Almighty himself. And the New Testament authors apply those passages to Jesus Christ. The most significant for me is in Isaiah chapter 45, where several times over again, we get this repeated phrase. It'll say uh, in verse 14, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is no other God. Verse Uh, verse 21, it's, it says, And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So he says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue Confess. So he's saying, Listen, I'm the Lord, there is no other. And I've taken a vow that this is going to happen. What's going to happen? That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, look what Paul does in Philippians 2. One of the great passages, Philippians 2 5 through 10. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, not less than. He's equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. The one that's equal to El Shaddai, the Almighty God, takes the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I forget who said it, but it was said, uh, it's more dignified for a man to become a worm than for God to become a man. Okay, he really condescends himself to become a man. And being found in appearance as a man. So this passage starts with his equality with God, and now he's found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient. What could God Almighty become obedient to? Believe it or not, it says to death. The very curse he put on mankind, he becomes obedient to that curse. He becomes obedient to death not falling asleep in his rocking chair at 99 years old type of death. It says even the death of the cross he was obedient to. Therefore, I don't have any people from my previous... Why is it there? What is it for? Right? God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Listen to this. That at the name of Jesus, first of all, when you say... When a Jewish man says the name above every name, you know he means the name Yahweh. It's the name above every name. Now it says he is given the name that's above every name. That it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. What did God say in Isaiah 45? I'm the Lord, there is no other. And I have decided that to me, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And now Paul says that one that everybody will bow and confess to, is the God, and that there is no other, and it's Jesus Christ. Okay? So the Old Testament is giving us the deity of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament. Certainly the New Testament. These are the, this is the Old Testament doing that, and it's pretty, pretty cool. All right, now. That was kind of the introduction. Let's get into the lesson. I'm going to start in 2 John I'm in your notes now if you uh, have your uh, QR code. 2 John, verses 7 through 11, says this. <clears throat> we're actually going to get the phrase, the doctrine of Christ here, of everything we're studying tonight. So it says in verse 7 For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So he says notice this wording, as Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. In other words, he's in the flesh, it's Jesus Christ, but what's the confession? That he came from somewhere else where he wasn't in the flesh and he came as in the flesh. He says, those that don't confess it, he said, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Lowercase a, antichrist. Okay. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. He's saying there's a Christology already established when John the is still alive writing 2 John. He says there's a doctrine of Christ. He says whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. These are our Mormons and Jehovah Witness friends. Okay, they do not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. He says there is a doctrine of Christ. And now, what is hinted at in here that is the doctrine of Christ? First of all, that word of, doctrine of Christ, is probably the best translation but that same word can also mean the doctrine about Christ. And if it's translated the doctrine about Christ, then it's talking about his deity, okay? It's talking about his deity. It's the doctrine uh, about Jesus Christ. If it's translated from, the same word can mean from, of, or about. If it means from, the doctrine from Christ, It means it's talking about Jesus' teachings. The doctrine of Christ are the teachings of Jesus. Most of your translations will use this word of because all of Scripture, (coughs) all of the New Testament says that the teachings of Christ are vital and unchanging and for everybody, and it also says that his deity is essential to your understanding of him. So instead of using the doctrine about Christ, speaking of his deity, instead of using the doc that he came in the flesh, Instead of using the doctrine about Christ, which is about his teachings, uh, most versions will translate it the doctrine of Christ because it contains both. Okay, his deity and his teachings. So it's that doctrine that we have to hold on to. It's that doctrine that allows us to stay in relationship with God. If you don't have this doctrine, you don't have God. Okay, so we're going to really, really unpack uh, this doctrine of Christ. Now, if you read systematic theology books about Christology, the doctrine of Christ, you almost always get, here's his natures, human nature, divine nature. We're going to talk about that. But if you know me at all, you know that I'm going to bring us right back into scripture um, as soon as we can. So here's what I want to do back to the definition of God. God is the greatest conceivable being. The greatest claim that could ever be uttered from a human mouth is that you're claiming to be that greatest conceivable being. What greater claim could you possibly make about yourself? than you're the greatest conceivable being, right? So when does Jesus make this claim? When does he actually say, I am indeed the greatest conceivable being? First of all, he does it in Mark chapter two. In Mark chapter two, (coughs) excuse me, when jesus heals a paralytic man he's got something in mind with healing that paralytic man because when they get him through the roof the paralytic through the roof they lie him at jesus's feet the obvious thing to say is you're healed he gets up and he walks away jesus does that with the blind and and others with this man he does something different why because the bible says the house is so packed with people that they can't even get to him through the door they got to come through the roof so with that type of audience And there's clearly Pharisees in that audience because they're going to speak up in the story. Jesus, knowing what's in these Pharisees' hearts and minds against him, instead of healing the man, he first says, your sins are forgiven. Because if you're a Pharisee worth your salt in that moment, you're going to speak up and say, whoa, dude, you just claim to do something that only God can do. Exactly the trap that Jesus set for him. Publicly announced from a Pharisee's mouth that only God can forgive sins. So now... That's an invisible thing, forgiving sins. You can't see it happen. So now Jesus uses the paralyzed man to give him a visible representation of his power. He said, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to tell a paralyzed man to walk because you can't see if I forgave his sins, but you will be able to see if I can heal a paralyzed man. So he said, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, hence, I'm God, he says to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, and the man immediately got up and walked and astounded everybody. Therefore, Jesus' claim of being God is confirmed. It's one way Jesus claims to be God. Another way he claims to be God, we find in John chapter 8. And that is where he's debating these Pharisees again and the topic of Abraham and who's Abraham's children comes up. And Jesus makes this statement, before Abraham was I am. And you go, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, even if you don't know exactly what he's talking about, that he's using the covenant name of God given by God at the burning bush, speaking to Moses. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God said, you tell him I am sent you. Jesus uses that name when he says before Abraham was, I am. Speaking of pre-existence, he pre-exists Abraham because they said, you're not even 50 years old and you claim to know Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. Not before Abraham was, I will be. But before Abraham was, I am. I'm the always existing one. It's so crystal clear that the Pharisees understood that that's what he was getting at. That the very next verse says they picked up stones to stone him to death. It's not a fit of rage that they're in. That's them following the law of Moses. You're stone people that claim to be God. So they knew crystal clear he's claiming to be God there. Okay. Then in John chapter 10, (coughs) John 10, starting in verse 22, we get this. Now it was the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So here we go, right? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. How do his works bear witness that he's actually God? They're miracles, okay? If you can raise the dead, heal the blind, heal the lame, cleanse the lepers, all that, then you've you've got a claim on your hands, don't you? To be somebody special. So he says, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who must you think you are if you say, I give you eternal life? Who must you be? And they shall never perish. Do you know that's your destiny to never perish? Okay, think about the things you complain about and then think about what Jesus has done for you and see if you still complain about it. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So he says, my father who has given it to me is greater than who? Than all? And then he says this, I and my father are one. So if his father is greater than all and he and his father are one, then Jesus is greater than all. God is the greatest conceivable being. That's what he's claiming. And if that's not plain enough, we go to Matthew 27, starting in 57. Matthew 27, 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, half of that is right. What half of that is right? He says, I'll rebuild the temple in three days. The part that they got wrong is they said, Jesus said, they quote Jesus saying, I'm able to destroy the temple. That's not what he said there. He said to the Pharisees, you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about himself as a temple, right? And who's he now, who's he saying is going to destroy the temple? Who's going to kill him? The Pharisees. He's actually already predicting who his killers will be. He says to the Pharisees, you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Imagine telling Jesus, I'm putting you under oath by by you. Okay, Tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you have said. Nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the mighty vision of Daniel. Seeing the seeing one like a Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. Coming on the clouds of heaven, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said, you remember that amazing vision? That was me. You saw me. Right there. Okay? So, uh, do they understand what he's saying? Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. There's the charge that gets him killed. He just said he's God. What further do we need do we have of witnesses? Look, you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. The only crime he's ever charged with is blasphemy, which is claiming to be God, and that's the whole point. He did claim it, right? All right. So, the greatest conceivable being becomes a man, and that man makes clear that he's the greatest conceivable being. Um, to me, this is the most poetic, the most beautiful passage of the deity and the humanity of Jesus, and follow this closely, because after this, you're going to hear about the Council of Chalcedon, you're going to hear about the 4th and the 5th centuries, you're going to hear about the hypostatic union, the historian controversy, And the Aryan controversy, it's going to get really dry sounding. So enjoy this while you can. Here we go. Okay. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, so we have this thing called the Word, and he's with God, and the Word was God. So now you know we have a unique relationship here that doesn't exist human to human. You can't both be with a human and be that human, can you? Okay, so now we have a situation where this word, Greek logos here, is both with God and he is God. In fact, in the Greek, it's much more emphatic than the English. In the Greek, it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and it says in God was the word. It says God was that word. And why is that significant to say it that way? Because of verse 14 that says, and that word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God's the word. God is the word who's become flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's a clear statement of Jesus' deity and his humanity. Okay. So in Jesus' human nature, Jesus as a human being, he doesn't know when his second coming is. He gets tired, he gets sweaty, he gets hungry, he gets sleepy, and he dies. That's all his human nature. That's the carpenter, not the Christ. Okay? Hebrews says he became like us in every way, including suffering, so he could be a faithful high priest to us. He's a better high priest for us. You know, the Bible talks about him growing in his perfections. So, how can you. How can you grow in wisdom when you're all wise? How can you grow in morality when you're entirely moral? The idea is he was a God who never suffered physically before, right? So now the Bible says that he was perfected through sufferings. So how could you be totally perfect and be perfected? If you're totally perfect, there should be no room for perfecting. But it says he was totally perfect and he was being perfected by sufferings because he never had to suffer. Without sufferings, he was perfect. Now you're going to add sufferings to him, and he's going to do that perfectly. So he's being perfected through his sufferings, so that he can be a faithful high priest to us. His divine nature, where his human nature gets tired, sweaty, hungry, and sleepy, and dies. And, you know, when you pray, and sometimes you feel like, God, you know, who exactly are you and who am I talking to and how am I supposed to picture you right now? And you have all these questions in your prayer life. Sometimes your theology gets so thick, you just got to stop and remember, I'm praying to the one that got tired, sweaty, hungry, and sleepy, just like I do, right? He gets me, he understands me. He's not so foreign. He bothered to become me so that I can know that he knows me, okay? Okay. His divine nature knows our thoughts. Psalm 139, you know my thoughts from afar. As he meets Nathanael in John 1, he says, you're a true Israelite indeed, whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael's very first words to Christ ever were, how do you know me? Okay? He He knows our thoughts. He walks on water. He raises the dead. This is the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not completely accurate to say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Because how many of you are math majors? Okay, so there's one person here who can hold me accountable for this. You can't say fully, fully this and fully that because once you're fully anything, you're nothing of anything else. It's so when a coach says, give me 110%, you say, coach, you don't know your math. If I give you absolutely everything I got, it's going to be 100%, right? Jesus can't both be fully God and fully man. So now we're going to get into this thing called the hypostatic union of Christ. And I know you're going, we know this, we know this, we know this. You do? I thought you'd laugh at that because you don't know this. All right. That one really bombed. All right. All right. So anyways, The proper understanding of the natures of Christ is that where you and I just have a human nature, it's all we got. There's no other nature about us but our human nature. Jesus has both a human nature and he has a divine nature, okay? He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. He's had two natures. This is called the hypostatic union of the natures of Jesus Christ. Now, the there were four different centuries that taught this in wrong ways that had to be corrected through councils. The 4th century, the 5th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century. In the 4th century, they had what was called the Arian controversy that said that Jesus is only divine. He's not human. He didn't have a human body. They were called docetists, because the word docetis means to seem or to appear. It only appeared that he was a human being. He was actually God, but he wasn't a human being. There was no human nature to Jesus Christ. It was the heresy of the fourth century. That got solved at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And they talked about the, what we call the theanthropic nature of Christ. They they, they combined his divinity and his humanity, and they said he was theanthropic, theanthropic. The thean, it comes from theos, God. Anthropic comes from anthropos, anthropology, man. So it said he has one God-man nature. They mix these two natures together. It's wrong. It's not what the scriptures teach us, and we'll show that in a minute. Now, in the 5th century, we had the opposite controversy called the Nestorian controversy. This was fixed at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and there they taught that Christ had two personhoods. He wasn't one person, he was two personhoods. Now, (coughs) when we talk about the Trinity, we have God as one essence or one being. We're, We're monotheists, correct? We believe in one God and one God only, yet that one God has three personhoods, the personhood of the Father, personhood of the Son, personhood of the Holy Spirit, but those three personhoods are all part of the one essence of God. So we're monotheistic, but we're Trinitarian in our monotheism, unlike Islam and Judaism and so forth. Okay, Because the unmistakable teachings of the New Testament is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in power, glory, and dignity as God. And they all affirm that there's only one God. So it's Trinitarian through and through. So don't confuse one essence, three personhoods with the fact that Jesus, this, this, this heresy, Nestorian heresy says Jesus had two personhoods. Okay, He had two separate personalities, one divine and one human. He has two natures in, that, in his one personhood. That's the proper teaching. Not two personhoods, he has one personhood. We have the personhood of the son. If Jesus has two personhoods, then our trinity is now a quadrinity or whatever you call it. It would be four. be father, son, son, and Holy Spirit if he has two persons, right? He's not two persons, he's one. That one person has two natures, just like our one God has three personhoods. Clear enough? Okay. So now... Instead of saying Jesus is fully divine and fully human, it's more appropriate to say Jesus is fully divine in his divine nature. And he's fully human in his human nature. He is no less human than you and I in his human nature. He's no less divine than God in his divine nature. But now what we get in what's called the Athanasius Creed that gives us the doctrine to follow so that we don't confuse ourselves with this. It teaches about Jesus' two natures, the hypostatic union of Christ of his two natures within his one personhood, that they are perfectly united, but now it's going to give us four negatives to understand this perfect unity. These four negatives are this. The two natures of Christ are perfectly united, Without mixture, you can't mix them together. That's where you get that theanthropic nature I talked about before, mixing his natures together. If you mix the natures together, then when the human Jesus dies, then God also dies on that cross, correct? If his natures are combined, then you have a dead God hanging on a cross instead of a dead man. Okay. So they're without mixture, and they're without confusion, we don't confuse the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his divinity, and we don't mix them together. That's how they solve the Aryan heresy of the, of the uh, fourth century. The other two negatives are his two natures are perfectly united without separation and without division. They're not separated, they're not divided, they're not mixed and they're not confused. The without separation, without division solved the Nestorian heresy of the 5th century. So they're perfectly united, without mixture, without confusion, without separation, without division. It's called the hypostatic union of Christ. So the Athanasius Creed that was formed off of this in the 4th century says this. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess That our Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born within time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. That's what we read in Philippians 2, 5 through 10, that although he was God, he humbled himself and became an obedient servant even to death. Okay, Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human, is the creed to explain that. Now, time is getting away from me. Let's uh, move forward. Now, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. All great Men of the past, their greatness hit a wall and ended their greatness upon their death. Death ended their purpose, meaning, importance, all of that. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, was born to die. All of the fulfillment of what his importance and worth were about is fulfilled in his death. It's not stopped at his death. It comes to life at his death. His death brings meaning to his entire life. And we see that in very fascinating ways in scripture. We see that because at his birth, we get the birth narrative of Jesus Christ seen through the eyes of a Joseph and Mary. And they wrap him in in swaddling cloths and lie him in a manger. Not the mangers that we buy at Walmart and put in our front yards. Those are like 19th century European mangers. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have a 19th century European manger. A manger is a feeding trough. It literally means to eat is what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. They cut it out of stone cave walls and they would flatten out that stone. They put a little ridge around that, that rectangular uh, slab because they would pour animal feed onto that and the animals would eat off of that, okay? So, so you have this swaddled baby lying on this stone bed in the presence of a Mary and Joseph that had an angelic announcement telling the shepherds about it to go see it. His death is also given to us through the eyes of a Joseph and a Mary. Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene. And Joseph of Arimathea wraps him in burial cloths and lies him on a stone bed with angelic announcement announcing his resurrection from the dead. In other words, it's the same players, same names, same scenes, same props, so to speak, at his birth and his death. Why? Because God is showing us that at his birth, he's born for that event of his death. Everything about Jesus is fulfilled in his death. In fact, I was just teaching out of uh, Isaiah 40 today. And in Isaiah 40, it says there's this voice that's saying Get up into the high mountain of Jerusalem, Zion, the mountain of God. Lift up your voice with strength. It says lift up your voice and be not afraid. The Hebrew term there indicates it's saying lift up your voice and carry no doubts. Speak in a way where people know you're not doubting this. You're speaking with absolute certainty. And it says do that in the mountain of Jerusalem. Why? Because the message that you're to shout from that mountain is behold your God. Now, so there's something about God on this mountain in Jerusalem that we're to behold. So look at Jesus's life now. What happened to him in Jerusalem? It can't be the birth. That's, not, that's in Bethlehem. It can't be his upbringing. That's in Nazareth. It can't be his teaching. That's in Galilee. So what's it pointing us to in Jerusalem? His death. And it's saying, behold your God. And when you behold your God in Jerusalem, he's naked and beaten bloody and whipped and dying. And it says, lift up your voice at that beaten bloodied slashed man and say to everybody, hey, behold your God. Isn't it amazing that it uses that picture of him dying on a cross and says, tell people to behold that as the one they're gonna, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The the man being executed by his government that just got mocked by the crowds. Behold him, your God. Isn't that remarkable? Could you pull off a story like that and get people to believe it? Give me a break. This is so divine. It's ridiculous. Now, this birth was told beforehand through signs and wonders. Through signs and wonders. This doctrine of Christ is not new with the arrival of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is preexistent. So in Isaiah 7, we get this very familiar passage about the birth of Christ, but I think it's more fascinating than you may have ever heard. I really want you to follow this, because to me, this is the stuff that says, you have no choice but to acknowledge this book is inspired by God. Isaiah 7, 10 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth below or in the height above. Interesting way of putting it. Ask a sign. What's a sign? It's a miracle, right? (laughs) Ask God for a miracle. Make your request as high as heaven. Some versions say this, or as low as shale. It's as far down as you can go, it's shale, or as high as heaven. No limits to your request. Ask whatever you want. God will give you the miracle to prove to you himself. And Ahaz in his rebellion said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That's not being humble. That's being rebellious. Then Isaiah said, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but now you will weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord's going to give you a miracle. The Lord's going to point to himself through signs. And what is this sign? Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. People are saying he was never called Emmanuel. He was called Emmanuel every time he was recognized as God, not God in heaven. This is God with us now. That's what he's going to be called. There's a difference between being called something and being named, right? I've been called lots of things, okay? But I'm named Bill, right? There's a difference. He'll be called God with us, but he'll be named Jesus. That's a difference because Jesus means God saves. What other name would he have than Jesus, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we are just told, make this sign as high as heaven above or as low as Sheol below. And what, sign of what? That a virgin's going to have a child. And he'll be God right here on the earth with us, right? So what are these signs then? That the Lord himself will give us. Matthew chapter 2, first first two verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, to the virgin that Isaiah prophesied, correct? Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship Him. How did these wise men know where to show up? They saw a sign. Where? In the heavens above. Isaiah said, the Lord himself will give you a sign as high as the heavens above about a virgin having a child. What was the sign as high as heaven? Star of Bethlehem. Okay? What about the sign below? Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now, what did I say a manger was? What does manger mean? To eat. Isn't it interesting that he's put in a feeding trough as if he's to be fed upon? The same one that says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He's properly placed in that manger, that feeding trough, isn't he? He is to be fed upon. Now, What is the sign as low uh, as as Sheol below? Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight. So it was, no, that's Luke chapter one. Luke chapter two, verse eight. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You hear that? What is this sign? You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, It's not much of a sign for a baby to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. You were probably swaddled as a baby. I was probably swaddled as a baby. Almost all babies are swaddled at some point in time. But the sign is that swaddled baby will be lying in a manger. Now remember, we keep seeing our manger scenes and thinking it's a crib. We even have songs that call it a crib. It's not a crib. Donkeys need to eat and they eat out of mangers. That's what it is. Okay? So the sign is there'll be a swaddled baby Lying in a manger. Now, what's a manger made out of? Stone. What's a sarcophagus? It's the stone box where you put a corpse, right? And how do you wrap a a body that's dead? Ask Joseph of Arimathea that did it to Jesus. You do it just like you swaddle a baby. You put Right hand on left shoulder, left hand on right shoulder. You put their feet together, maybe even cross them, and then you wrap them up tightly. For the baby, it recreates the womb and the comfort of the womb. For a corpse, then you anoint all of that and you mummify them. Okay? So the sign to the shepherds is this. You're going to find a child mummified, lying on a stone bed, and you're going to walk up to that and you're going to think you're approaching a dead child he has all the appearances of death it looks like somebody prepared for burial lying in a sarcophagus but when you walk up to that child and look in his face you're going to find that he's alive and that's going to be your sign that despite all the appearances of death this child's alive that's a sign as low as the grave the grave of sheol okay In fact, like I said, that's the exact picture of Jesus' tomb. He's swaddled in burial cloths, lying on a stone bed in the presence of angels. It's like his birth. Okay? So, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ is told by signs and wonders in the Old Testament. And we're given those signs in the New Testament. That makes historians like Will Durant say things like this, despite the prejudices and theological misconceptions of the apostles, remember, they're always getting Jesus' theology wrong. Every time he says, I'm going to die and rise again, they go, no, no, not on our watch, man, right? We won't let it happen to you. Um, Despite the prejudices and theological misconceptions of the evangelists, they record many incidents that mere inventors, if you're inventing these stories, would have concealed They include the competition that they had for high places in the kingdom. If you're making up this story, you don't make yourself look like a fool and be like, hey, we wanted the best places at the dinner table type of thing, right? How about their flight after Jesus' arrest? If you're making it up, are you going to say, we ran like cowards? Uh, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the references of some to his possible insanity his confession of ignorance as to the future, his moments of bitterness, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. The fact that a few simple men should have in one generation have invented so powerful and so appealing a personality as Christ and so lofty an ethic as the Christian ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood that would be a miracle far more incredible than any miracle recorded in the Gospels. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life and the character and the teachings of Christ remain clear, and they constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. Saying, listen, how do 12 bumbling fools create that character unless they're just telling the truth? Why did they embarrass themselves in their writings so often unless they're just telling the truth? And why are they being executed all over the world for telling the story if they're not telling the truth? That was Will Durant, our historian. Here's what Philip Schaff, another historian says. The testimony of the disciples, if it's not true, is either downright blasphemy or complete madness. The former hypothesis that it's blasphemy cannot stand a moment before the moral purity and dignity of Jesus, revealed in his every word and his every work and acknowledged by universal consent worldwide. Self-deception about being God in a manner so momentous and with an intellect in all respects so clear and so sound is equally out of the question. How could Jesus be some enthusiast or a madman who never lost the even balance of his mind who sailed serenely over all the troubles and persecutions as the sun above the clouds, who always returned the wisest answers to tempting questions, who calmly and deliberately predicted his death on a cross, his resurrection on the third day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the founding of his church, the destruction of Jerusalem, all predictions which have literally been fulfilled. A character so original, so complete, so uniformly consistent, so perfect, so human, and yet so high above all human greatness can neither be a fraud nor a fiction. The poet, as has been well said, in this case, will be greater than the hero. It would take more than a Jesus to invent a Jesus. Isn't that true? Shakespeare created a lot of great characters, didn't he? Are any of them Christ? Could he have done anything like that? Okay? And these fishermen aren't Shakespearean writers. They're fishermen. Okay? It's absolutely astounding. The the unmistakable humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, why did he have to be human? Why did he have to be human? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why does it have to be blood? Because how else are we gonna know that our sin is serious unless there's blood spilt on the ground because of our sin? If there's any other thing, we still don't take sin serious enough, and it requires blood. Imagine if it it required something less than blood, how bad we would be. He had to become a human being to be the sacrifice for human beings. He's unmistakably human. He weeps at his friend's memorial service. He's tired. He's weary. He's thirsty, he's hungry, he gets frustrated, he's human. And then he takes a walk across the Sea of Galilee. Then he heals the lepers. And when John the Baptist is getting doubtful about Jesus, there's a great story for the times we hit doubt. When John the Baptist is sitting in prison and he's looking at his circumstances, he's saying, I can't believe me, John the Baptist would be in prison when my cousin, Jesus Christ, is out there. Why wouldn't he get me out? So he actually sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask a very rude question. He says, ask him this. Are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we wait for somebody else? How do you like that question from his cousin? Why? Because John doesn't understand his circumstances. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't understand your circumstances? And then did you ever look at God and go, should I look for somebody else, God? Because I don't get why I'm in the circumstances if you are who you say you are. Okay, so how did Jesus handle John the Baptist here? Well, he said, go tell John what you've heard and seen. He says, I've already done enough to prove who I am. You go and tell him what you've heard and seen. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, why is Jesus using that as his proof? Because in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is trying to talk God out of going to Pharaoh and his last-ditch effort, say, I don't speak well, once you pick somebody else, God says, you don't speak well? Who made your mouth? Who makes man mute or speaking, deaf or hearing, blind or seeing? Isn't it I, the Lord? So Jesus says, tell John this, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. And what's John to realize? God said only he does that to Moses. So now Jesus is doing that, so who must Jesus be? Now take note, Jesus still doesn't get him out of jail. He lets him stay there, and John shortly afterwards gets beheaded and dies. But what does Jesus say about that? Amongst men born amongst women, John the Baptist is the greatest, but he who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. So he lets John go be greater. That's Jesus' view of our death. It's just, you're just moving. Just move to another place where you can be greater. It's what it is. So he lets John die. And Jesus will say to the, to the Pharisees, who do you think John was? And they huddle together and they say, gosh, if we say a prophet, then he's going to ask us why we didn't listen to him. But if we say just a man, then all his followers who hold John to be a prophet are going to get mad at us. So they go back to Jesus and say, we don't know. And then the next thing they do is they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because what happened to John? He gets beheaded and his head gets handed over on a silver platter, right? And then they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You want to talk about the mind that sails serenely over difficulties that can't possibly be a madman? When they asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, they're talking about the tax that actually funded the Roman soldiers that oppressed them. So the Jews had to pay for their own oppression. How annoying would that be? So they would fight that tax all the time. So now they're saying, Jesus, should we pay that tax or not? Knowing if Jesus says, pay the tax, he's going to lose his followers. And if he says, don't pay the tax, they're going to arrest them as a lawbreaker. So they're convinced Jesus' ministry ends today. We're going to get rid of them right here with this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes, Caesar's or not? And Jesus says, show me the coin. And that's a weird thing to say, right? If you said to me, hey, should I, should I pay this debt? And I go, well, I don't know, show me the money. Okay? Jesus says, show me the coin. Okay, And they hand him a denarius. Now, denarius is, I, I actually have one of these things. I have a denarii my, my, my kids bought me for Christmas or birthday or something. But from the first century, it's, it looks like a dime. It's the size of a dime. It's flat like a dime. It's silver like a dime. And it has Caesar's image on it. And Jesus says, give, give, me, give me the coin. They give him the coin. And here's why I love that. Because they just got done talking about John the Baptist and Jesus challenged him about John the Baptist because they, he knows their guilt, he knows he's just been beheaded and his head delivered on a silver platter. So he says, Show me the coin. And in effect, what they're doing is they're delivering Caesar's head to Jesus on a silver platter. And then he takes that coin and he points, he says, Whose image is on this? They said, Caesar's. So Jesus simplifies things. If that's his image, then give him his coin. But then he says, This but render unto God the things that are God's. Because God has stamped his image on stuff too. What does he put his image on? You, on those Pharisees. He says, you can have your dime, but give yourself to God. Is he a madman? It says they dared not ask him any more questions. Right? They finally learn. Okay? So, the doctrine of Jesus Christ that keeps us Properly worshiping him, properly understanding him is fully man in his human nature, fully God in his divine nature, two natures of Jesus Christ, the hypostatic union of of his two natures, Um, fully God in his divine, fully man in his human nature. He had to be fully man to be our sacrifice, and he just is fully God as he shows through all of his works that he said. If you don't believe me, at least believe based on the works that I do, correct? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we celebrate you. I mean, this is, who could think of such a thing as all of this, Lord? And we thank you that the fascination is simply on who you are. And we praise you for it. We're so thankful, Lord, that you call us your sons and daughters. What a privilege and what an honor. The love of God that that you bestow on us that you would call us your children, Lord. And may our hearts ever, ever be grateful for that. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, amen. Amen.